Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now we're at the seventh in our sermon series on the Minor Prophets, and we're in God's Word this evening at Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, page 791 in your Pew Bible. Now in the previous Sunday evenings, we learned how Haggai preached to the leaders and to the people in a 15-week period that began on August 29th, 520 B.C. And we learned that he preached in the midst of a crisis. We learn that although God had commanded that his temple be rebuilt, work had stopped for over 10 years, and all the hopes of the returning Jews had gone to ashes. And so in the midst of this crisis, Haggai stands to preach the word of God. And he goes straight to the heart of the problem in verse 2 of chapter 1 that hidden behind a false humility and spirituality, the leaders and the people no longer trusted the Lord and so had become lazy. They doubted God's word. And then in verses 3 to 11, Haggai gives a deeper analysis and a conclusion. First, he exposes their wrongful expectation. They had set an order to what was important that had placed God's glory and honor last. Second, he called for a deeper examination. They were to consider their ways. He tells them to realign their consciences with the word of God. And then third, he ended in a definitive application. They are to go, gather wood, and build the temple of the Lord. But what was the result of Haggai's preaching? We find out in the next verses. There is a revival among the leaders and the people. They awaken from their spiritual slumber. And we today can be encouraged in their revival. But we can also ask, what was it that catalyzed them into an awakening? How did it impact them? What was its effect? And so we, from learning those answers, we can apply them directly to our Christian lives today. We can do this because God's word remains the same in its sufficiency for our lives and in its potency for transforming our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it would be good for you tonight to keep your Bible open because we're going to be moving back and forth in these four verses. So first, let's examine the catalyst. Look above Verse 12, our reading for this evening. What do you read there? In verse 2, 
you read, thus says the Lord of hosts. And in verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves? And now verses 5 and 7. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. And to finish in verse 9, declares the Lord of hosts. We can see here quite clearly that Haggai has preached the word of God, the pure word of God, in verses 2 to 11. He is direct. He is clear. God is speaking to you. Listen to him. And now we read the results in verses 12 to 15. Look at verse 12. Then they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And a bit further down. And the people feared the Lord. And look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of the leaders and the remnant of the people. We can see here that there is a spiritual awakening among the leaders and the people of God. It is a revival. What we see here are the hallmarks of a spiritual revival that energizes the people into action. Notice how the first evidence of revival is an increasing conviction among believers. Their conscience has been touched. Now, what is this conviction that God impresses upon their consciences? It was that they have not glorified God in the manner that fits their reality that he has brought them out of Egypt by his grace alone. He has saved them by grace alone, established his covenant with them by grace alone. He is their father, and Israel are his children. And so the believers of that day wake up to a deeper appreciation of the scriptures and for the gospel that saved them. Distractions are put away. Now this should not surprise us, should it? Because what plagued these Old Testament believers, and can plague every believer since that day, are the devices and desires of our own hearts, as the old prayer book used to say, stirred to distraction by the evil one, from God's word and God's ways. Now our Savior, Jesus Christ, called this soil number three. Well, all right, perhaps not in so many words, but it's from the parable of the sower, where the seed is the word of God, and there was a third type of soil. Do you remember it? Well, listen to Mark Chapter 4, verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Now, what did the Lord mean by weedy thorns? Well, in verse 18 of Mark 4, he tells us. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in 
and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. We saw this last week, didn't we? How the people were busy building their own houses. How the leaders were trying to evoke the glory of Solomon himself in fine paneling in the interior. And so the desires of the world entered in, choked off the word, and brought them to a place of unfruitfulness. We see how the cares of this world strangle the spiritual realities out of your life, leaving you in a worldliness that puts your comfort first and not the glory and honor of God. And the evidence we saw was in their priorities, putting their interests above God's command. But now, because the word of God is preached by the prophet Haggai, these worldly weeds are cut away and set for the burning. And what is the result? There is a reaffirming trust and confidence that grows in their hearts. There is a renewed awareness of their sinfulness and their need of God's grace. And so a humility begins to grow as they obey the word of the Lord. So we can learn two principles here right away. That revival comes first to the people of God before any unbeliever is saved. And revival only comes only comes in the preaching of the word of God. The catalyst is the preaching of the word of God. Now let's look at the impact next. Now that we understand that it was the work of God's word, the impact is obvious. We can see the same in Paul's second letter to Timothy. We can let that be our guide. You probably know the verse. It's 2 Timothy 3.16. It's page 996 in your pew Bible if you want to turn to it now. There, Paul lists four useful areas in the impact of God's word to our souls. All scripture, he says is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And all of these are found in the people hearing the word of God from the prophet Haggai. There are teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. Notice how God's word instructs the leaders, and the remnant of the people. There is no satisfaction in a partial obedience to the Lord. Only a wholehearted commitment to him brings satisfaction. A partial obedience nurtures a spirit of complaint in us and unhappiness in our hearts. A partial obedience, therefore, makes our service a grievous work rather than a joyous opportunity for his glory. And so Haggai teaches them, and they respond to his instruction. Now notice how the word of God reproves and corrects them. Look at verse 14 again 
in Haggai chapter 1. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of the leaders and the people. We've seen how their consciences have been touched. They felt now for the first time that God was speaking to them. They're aroused from their lethargic sleep. Their consciences convicted them of their lack of obedience, this partial obedience, and their lack of action. Therefore, based upon what we learned last week of the human conscience, what can we say here as God's Spirit works through God's Word and so stirs up the spirit of the listeners? We can say that they have felt the Lord's rebuke. That they clearly see the false justification of their actions. And thanks be to God, they hear the voice of God clearly. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit stirring our consciences into action. And lastly, notice how they are transformed in righteousness. It's a bit further down in verse 12. And the people feared the Lord. Now, we need the Hebrew here to help us. Because it reads literally, And the people feared before the face of the Lord. My dear friends, they had lived as though God was not looking. Their conscience pricked them, and they responded with guilt. You see, so many of us, when we are spiritually asleep, convince ourselves that it is God who is sleeping, that he's not looking. When I ponder what Haggai preaches here, I am reminded of Peter's guilt in his three-time denial of our Savior. Peter acted as if Jesus could not see what he was doing. But do you remember what Luke's gospel says? Listen to Luke chapter 22. The rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus had seen it all. Every denial followed at the end with a bitter oath. Jesus saw it all and Peter wept bitterly in his guilt. His conscience pricked in that way. If only I had lived as though he were looking at me. If only I had lived knowing that the Lord's gaze was turned upon me. Do we, my friends, live like Peter today? God isn't looking. Or do you live knowing that God's face is turned toward you because you are his child? That you live in his presence? And my dear friend, that he did not spare his only son to save you. Do you live with his gaze upon you? If not, you must ask yourself, why not? Are you, my friend, spiritually asleep this evening? Now, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.17 that the purpose of God's words, inward work, is an outward 
manifestation. He says, equipped to this purpose for every good work. So what did the leaders and the people do? Verse 14 tells us, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The people, their hearts convicted, asked a simple question. What will bring most glory to the Lord and bring him pleasure rather to me and my life? And that's how the word of God works, doesn't it? He must increase. I must decrease. We live God's way, within God's gaze. And living God's way, he brings the believer a peace that the world cannot give. But we can doubt this, can't we? We can distrust any suggestion that puts God's glory and his pleasure first. So Haggai here can help you, my dear friend. Receive the Lord's gentle correction to be encouraged and stabilized in the effects and the hearts of the people who hear God's word. And therein is our next, the effect. There are two effects of Haggai's preaching ministry. The first is a great comfort to you and me as well. That the leaders and the people experience the presence of God. The presence of God, my dear friends. We can see it in verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12 again. Then they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the second half of verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. In these two examples... We have the language of intimate fellowship. The people thought, he is my God. I am his child. Do you remember verse 2? God's stinging condemnation? Look up and see it again. He says what? These people. These people, but no longer, my dear friends, there's a new sense of fellowship and joy among them. He is my God. I am his child. And that is the only thing that matters. Believers live our lives conscious that he is our God and we are his children in Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that matters to every believer and every church congregation. You know, my dear friends, one of the great benefits of being a tiny church like ours is that the Holy Spirit shows up or he does not. We do not have the resources to manufacture or design a mood or manipulate people's feelings. We just can't do it. But my dear friends, as long as God's presence is here in his word preached, you may go home thinking God was with us this evening. I could sense his gracious presence. And what truly matters more than that? So the people have a renewed experience of the presence of God. And what comes of that experience? Well, they have a sense of real unity. 
unity in the spirit of God. Where do we see it? It's in the repetitions of verses 12 and 14. In verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. And then in 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Now we learned that in Hebrew, The repetitions are not meant to make the life awkward for preachers or lectors. But it is a common language style. Repetitions underline. They emphasize what is being expressed. And we see it here. Prophet plus leaders plus people together in a repeating pattern underlines their unity in obedience, their unity in conviction under the word of God. So the people consider among themselves, what can I do to serve? And the leaders did not restrain the people. Now why would I say that? That the leaders did not restrain the people, that they were united in the work. Well, people's devotion might rise above the devotion the leaders have shown. And we know that leadership fails when a leader bridles the people under their authority so they are not embarrassed in their lackluster commitment and so lose influence and status. What is happening then? Their priorities are first And God's honor and God's glory is last. The speed of the leader, the speed of the people. But notice, my dear friends, the glorious news, how they're all humbled before the Lord. They all have this glorious spiritual unity, each asking the same question, Lord, what can I do? And its application cannot be simpler for us What is the decline hallmark in a local church? What is the hallmark of decline? It's the attitude we saw at verse 2. It's not the right time. When the time is right, then. And what is the hallmark of revival? It is the attitude of verse 12. What can I do? There is no escape from Scripture's teaching here, when awakened by God's word, a believer always asks, what can I do? But be encouraged, my dear friend. Do not fear that such a question will become a burden to you, something more that you must do, because it is born in the word of God. It is a birth Enjoy surpassing your pleasant place and understanding of your Savior that you gain from traveling through the scriptures. For what indeed is the purpose of God's word? It is to reveal your Savior, to reveal Jesus Christ in his full eschatological Reality. Now, wait, you're probably saying, what does that mean? 
But what I mean is this. If you still picture your Savior Jesus in his earthly ministry of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have frustrated the purpose of the Word of God. For to whom do the Scriptures point? It is the Christ of Revelation. For heaven and earth flee away. It is to a beautiful, risen, and ascended Savior where no shadow is. And holy angels are drawn to his beauty, and his footsteps are in Eden. His breath is sweetness in the fairest of perfumes. His voice makes the cherubim weep with its pleasing nature, his hearing attuned to you. And the softest sighing in your distress. Oh, my friends, this is our Savior Christ revealed to us in the word of God. He has conquered death for us and ruled unchallenged for us. Behold the Lamb who was slain. My dear friends, who would not say, what can I do for such a Savior? Be encouraged. Go to God's word. Learn of your beautiful, sweet Jesus Christ. And do for his honor and his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the support the show link under the contact us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.